Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. And like every broadcast, we are out here in Scent City, Las Vegas, doing yet another podcast. This time, I get to do a podcast with a fellow podcast host. However, he's over across the pond in the Atlantic, all the way in Europe, and has decided to hop on here very early morning, your time, and evening, because that's what we're doing is I'm having a beer while he drinks coffee. Flo Schneider, welcome to, to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. It's a pleasure. So your podcast is Kino Talk, and you now have both a English and um, I would say, is it German, the, the primary yes. language? Yep. That you do the yeah. other part of the podcast in. And then you have Kinotech, which is your business. Tell, a little, tell us about you, how you got into detection dogs, and then, of course, your business and your podcast, uh, so just so the listeners can, can learn more about you. Yes, I'd love to. So, Kunotech actually is, is now my main business. Uh, I run Kunotech with uh, uh, a colleague, Stefan Pleiner, who is uh, in the EOD business, mm -hmm. and also with a friend who is, uh, with, the, who, who, who is with police for his full job, um, Christoph Ishofer. Um, so we train together, we discuss things, etc. And, and Kunotech is now focusing mostly on educating um, other professionals mm -hmm. um, in the private sector, but also uh, law enforcement, police, military, border patrol mm -hmm. uh, units like this, and focusing on detection, as you as you already mentioned. Um, but Kunotech actually is one of the three businesses that I'm involved in. So I still have my first business that I started up in 2016, and and that was HDX Working Dogs, which is basically. The, the, the casual dog school that, okay. I, that I started the whole career with. And apart from that, we have a, a trainer education for basic dog trainer um, people who, who, wants, well, who want to educate themselves and uh, um, yeah, who, who will start their career there. Okay. And that's, that's a, a great thing to do all, um, still all do the three of those things and focusing on Kunotech. Okay. Um, and you asked me to to talk with you today about the um, the, the mixture of different styles in mm -hmm. training, and mm -hmm. and I think looking back from to where I come from, um, it might get obvious as soon as you <laughs> or as soon as I understand as my uh, or see myself where I ran through. So uh -huh. I start. I didn't grow up with dogs. Actually, I was. I didn't feel very very attached to dogs when I was a child. I grew up in Tyrol, in the Alps, in the mountains, mm -hmm. and and the the place I grew up um, with a few houses around was called the uh, like the the Golden Retriever Village okay. because <laughs> <laughs> someone there had a, had a bitch. She got pregnant. She had a litter, and everyone in this little part of the village took a dog so now there was nine or eleven distanceless happy dogs running around <laughs> always being wet smelly and, and very friendly so somehow as a kid i i didn't feel really attracted to this sure but, um, <laughs> later 
with 17, my parents decided to, to buy our first dog. And, and then I slipped in, into the search and rescue dog community. Ah. I was very lucky because uh, we found an organization with a, with a young trainer. And at that time, like almost 13 years ago, um, it was very novel to to do clicker training, etc. Mm, so mm -hmm. this was like a like a like a big wow effect for everyone else, not for me because I didn't know anything. So for me, this was the the, the, the most normal thing to work with and to to train dogs with and to to start the training. Um, and then I soon started to to feel I want to learn more about the dogs. So I started in this organization some. Um, apart from the sportive tests that I ran through for search and rescue and obedience, I, I started the, the, the trainer educations. And in these clubs and organizations, these are like two or three weekend courses and then you're a certified trainer, um, <laughs> which of course <laughs> is not enough education. Sure. So I, I was still hungry for knowledge and then I did something completely different, uh, and we call it in German the the fraction of cotton ball throwers. <laughs> so this was a very <laughs> a very softy uh, trainer education that I ran through, and it lasted for more than two years. So it's a it's an education that you do besides your normal job, and mm -hmm. um, it was very intense and and very very nice. Um, the, the schedule had uh, many different trainers and scientists and uh, vets, uh, but it was as well a, a basic trainer education, just to learn more about the learning theory, um, animal behavior, mm -hmm. uh, basic needs of dogs, and yeah, and somehow there I I started to develop and 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 knew I wanted to to work with dogs. So meanwhile, I was a fully professional. It's not a paramedic, but it's it's in the end we dealt with the same problems uh, on the streets or in the homes of people. Mm -hmm. So I worked for the Red Cross in Austria, um, and then realized I wanted to to go with the dogs full time after four years there of driving around for all kinds of things. <laughs> yes, and then someone so I, I ran through different projects and um, doing the search and rescue thing I was really into that so that was uh, uh, one of the things I, I really loved and also the the obedience attached to that and, mm -hmm. and it was more sporty but also we did uh, preparations for deployment so I for all the Europeans who might know the IRO I did the mission readiness test for area search with with okay. my first dog back then in Belgium actually so we we failed in Slovenia <laughs> the first time and okay. a year later uh, after some more preparation and when I knew what I was dealing with, uh, yeah, we managed to to solve the, the, the given tasks. Um, yeah, and somehow then uh, on Facebook, I I found some clips of some Scandinavian trainers. Uh -huh. uh, and that was, back then it was Tobias. Yep. And and I don't know. I, I was in a. It was a time of of being a young trainer where I was. I, I realized I I need to go abroad, to to study more. I, I I need to go out of Austria to to learn more things. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and that's when I started the the trainings with the SWDI. So, 
after the first basic trainings that I ran through in Austria and, and had great trainers also from Germany, um, I wanted to enlarge uh, the horizon. And yeah, and, and now I'm here. So after almost four years, I think, of training with them, and if as, as soon as you train with them, the network grows, and then I got yeah. to know you and, and many, many others. And, as you see previously on, on my podcast, um, it's just a blast for myself now seeing <laughs> who, who I get to talk with. It's great. It's great. Now I'm here. <laughs> and, and you've had some really cool guests as of lately. Uh, I know you just did the one with Armin, um, which I plan on listening yes. to coming up. Uh, by the time this airs, I've already listened to it. But um, And then Pat Nolan was another great one you had on there. You've had Tobias, if you've had Jens, you've had, you've had some, you know, pretty big people out there in the detection dog world on your podcast. Um, So on that subject, who has been probably, or you would say is your biggest influence as a trainer? You can do, you can pick a couple if you, if you want to do different stages of time. Um, but who's been the biggest influence? And then who would you say is a, a influence even now? I think the biggest influence was uh, was in the end the first trainer I got to because uh, I was a, a blank piece of paper. Yeah. And, um, and this first trainer, this was even before the, the search and rescue group. Um, she was kind of old fashioned. Mm-hmm. So she was recommended by the by the breeder. It was not a, a purebred dog. It was a German Shepherd um, Swiss Mountain dog. Okay. Um, hybrid. It yeah. was a it was a mistake, but it was a, a puppy of love. <laughs> so <laughs> these were two breeding dogs that just lived together, and someone forgot to close the door. Um, so she was recommended to me, uh, Susie, mm-hmm. and um, she. She was, uh, how to say, future-minded, and and she wanted to um, stay with the time and, and realize that what they did twenty or thirty years ago was too harsh in many sure. ways. Um, not everything was wrong, of course, and 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 I realized that she has a a strong hand, mm-hmm. and but she really make me understand the, how to cooperate with dogs. Yes. So, not not dominate but cooperate and mm-hmm. make the dogs want what we have for them to just to make it more fun i think i think i was just lucky there to yeah. have her as as a first influencer to myself um because as i said um if you're totally green um you will go with everything that uh, 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 a so-called professional will tell you sure and um I think I was really lucky back then. Also, then when I got to the search and rescue dog training with this clicker trainer, um, go who's uh, frankly her name was also Susie. <laughs> so I had many, <laughs> Made it easy for you to remember. Su- su- <laughs> easy for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think this was the the, the most important um, um, trigger or influence back then. Mm-hmm. And hmm, today, today, no doubt. Um, I, I, I did train with many trainers, as I already mentioned, yeah. and I think all my my basic education um, years ago was uh, I started to you I, I I knew a lot of things I was um, 
a colleague of a friend of mine once called me Mr. Certificate because <laughs> I, I just tried to run through educations and um, yes, I, I like then to show that I accomplished another trainer education, etc. And so he, he said that a little bit to nag me. Sure. And, and um, but I was fine with that. But actually, then I started to understand that really, I just had a certificate on a paper. And in the past three years, I really understood, I started to understand how to apply the knowledge mm -hmm. that I ran through the 10 years before that. And that was with the SWDI. Yeah. So I couldn't say if it was more Jens or Tobias or Jessica. Okay. Um, I, I think it was the, it, I think it was back then was the SWDI when they still uh, were a team. Um, so they separated this year. Yeah. And uh, so there I really learned how to apply all the knowledge. And, and that was the second step after the first decade of um, absorbing knowledge. Mm -hmm. I hope now I'm in this in the phase of applying. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and still and still learning and still learning a lot. And I'm going to get let me go back to this. I'm going to get back to the uh, SWDI in a second. But a, another question I had for you was what's your favorite type of breed uh, for detection that you've worked with? I guess it really depends on the on the on the purpose and yep. in what environment the dog should work with. So I have the pleasure working with all kinds of teams who have all kinds of different um, requirements for the dogs, doing uh, searches outdoors uh, along railways, looking for little lizards or snakes. <laughs> uh -huh. And on the other hand, well, we had a deployment two days ago with our bed bug detection dogs okay. and. Then we work with military police who are, again, working in different environments. Mm -hmm. um, I really fancy, if it's about detection, I really fancy a mono-purpose dog. And therefore, well, I have a, a German pointer. Okay. And and Ignaz, he's, he's great. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> But actually, I, I would prefer Labradors in future. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I sold uh, Labrador to the Netherlands. And, and, and when I'm still having workshops and showing some video clips of, mm -hmm. of the nose work, um, I love to show her videos because they look best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's funny, like when you and I had this conversation on your podcast, uh, you had asked me the uh, same question, which is mm -hmm. why I had to ask you the same thing. And we both said, <laughs> you know, uh, Labrador was probably, you know, fits that top mark because of how yes. versatile it is with all the different things it can do. And then for me, my second choice was the Spaniel because as, as I had gone through, you know, I'd worked with pointers and mouths and things like that. Mm. Um, you know, I like what the Spaniel has shown me uh, as far mm -hmm. as a, a balance goes. But I can also say you have to, it goes back to, it's like anything else, picking the right dog. Um, but over here in the States, you know, the, as the pointers have gained a lot more popularity, I'm curious to get your take on this. Do you see this mm -hmm. over there? What I start, what I started seeing over the, I guess the past two years, more so in the past this past year, um, more genetic issues in the pointers than I'd ever seen previously. I had 
a couple within one year's time have brain issues. One had seizures. Oh, wow. Another one had a abnormality on the brain, which caused it to go aggressive. Um, so, which, you know, now when I say this, these pointers came from the same source. So yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's hard to say, is that global? However, um, even with other agencies I've seen that have had more, I would say with it, you know, pointers that are two years or younger, mostly a year or younger, have had various issues. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen the same thing in Europe? Because again, your guys' standards are much stronger. Now, in this case, I did import these dogs from Europe, but it's from mm-hmm. Eastern Europe, from Poland and places like that. Mm-hmm. So I we both know that there's some standards that are very different. The more Eastern Europe you go, the standards are yes. a little more or less, or should I say a little less uh, than what's in Germany and Austria and, and other places in Europe. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, the, the the first to answer not your question, going east also means sometimes to to get the better working dogs uh-huh. because they just were breeding. Historically, they were breeding for um, for performance mm-hmm. because they still used dogs on a daily basis yep. as a guard dog or yep. as a sheep dog or whatever or as a hunting companion. And in Western Europe, we had more like the show breeding yeah. because the wealthier part of Europe had just had the luxury of uh, not being relied on on the, on the dog's performance. But um, yes, um, this can go in all directions. So, yeah, of no, course, re- the health thing really and, the, and yeah. the pedigree and 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 not the uh, what's it called the inbreeding yes. and so on. This is because very- what you're bringing up is like, for example. Malinois and German Shepherds that I would typically see coming from Eastern countries in Europe had not as wide heads. They were longer yeah. and, and more narrow. The bodies were thinner, not as thick and bulky like I would say a typical East mm. German German Shepherd would have been mm. uh, back in those days. But with that said, the comp- uh, countries like Czechoslovakia and other places were also some of the first to really kind of push the popularity of the Malinois German Shepherd mix because mm-hmm. they were just trying to, I think, fill the the need of the market of needing more, you know, Malinois German Shepherds. And in some cases, if they could breed the, the combo of the two, maybe in hopes of gaining more balance, you know, ta- uh, taper down a little bit of the Malinois yeah. craziness, but increase yeah. some of the German Shepherd, um, you know, more calmness, I guess, and that's not always mm-hmm. the case. But there's, you know, what did you guys see from the European point of view? What was something that you guys talked about, or when you guys saw that? Because I, like I said, I, by living in Germany, I really got a good taste of dealing with the the DMC, dealing with the SV, and then the very strong requirements as far as like the look and the working. Now the SV really went towards looking years later. I, in fact, mm-hmm. I lived in Germany in 99 when it was the last year of the, uh, the police and the um, Bundesliga happening at the same time, the police competition ah, and the Bundesliga. Okay. That was the year they split uh, in 99. And it was because it was the fallout <laughs> from the SV saying, well, they gave more um, preference to the show lines. Like the competitions yeah. became much more about the show. And yeah. the frustration from that were at the same time, the DMC, which is the Deutsche Malinois Club, which is your Malin- yeah, obviously your Malinois side of things, mm-hmm. they were really embracing working. You know, they were really pushing mm-hmm. for working standards and things like that. 
And at the same time, in those years, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, the German Polizei were switching from German Shepherds, or they were using less German Shepherds to starting to buy more Malinois, um, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. a shift as well. So what has, you know, now we're fast forward 20 years, uh, mm-hmm. you're in that market. What, how does, I would guess, Western Europe view Eastern Europe when it comes to the selling of these types of dogs and the goals behind selling these dogs? Well, for, first of all, I have to point out that I'm not a specialist. No, no, but, these, these but you're topics. still you're still a dog person, and you to hear yeah, so. yeah, sure. Um, I, I'm just saying, as you know, there there are people who are really into these topics, who are studying the lines of mm-hmm. dogs, the pedigrees, and who know the the ancestor of the ancestors, and um, and I really admire these people who have yeah. that much knowledge. Uh, what I can say is. Um, Years ago, when I was talking with some of the rescue, search and rescue guys, and who also in Austria traditionally worked a lot of German shepherds, they were really into traveling to the eastern parts because yeah. there they found smaller, lighter, healthier um, German shepherds. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, also with um, a, a higher tendency of showing aggression. Because oh, as okay. I said, the the eastern lines, yeah, the old DDR also, lines. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if it's the DDR lines, but um, may, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But they were they were because I think the DDR lines also have a, a bigger performance. They are like yeah, mountains. Um, but these German shepherds are like maybe uh, lower than than thirty kilos and and light, fast dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, who had to fulfill a certain purpose in the homes of people um, to to secure and 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 to guard, etc. So, hmm. I I believe um, and and the other thing is um, concerning the Malinois that and you're totally right. I guess is that the German Shepherd people started to do the the show lines thing, and that's why police military military stepped away if you look at the pictures from the club show mm-hmm. or, or or these old shows and Armin actually pointed it out in in one of our previous meetings um if you see the german shepherds they really go steep in, yeah. on, on their hind legs oh, in the back big time and you have a look on the pictures of the KNPV dogs and on the malinois the mechelas and, yeah. and herder um they more or less look the same, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't mean that these dogs are better. But um, obviously, they managed to 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 select on performance, and somehow selection of performance, of course, also has an impact on on the appearance, on the yeah. on on what the animal looks like. Because if the, I understood the, you correctly, though, what Armin was pointing out was. The Malinois of today looks like the German Shepherd of yesterday. Yeah, yes, no, I think the Malinois from today still looks like the Malinois from back then. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and, they haven't and, changed. Yes, and the Malinois and the German Shepherd back then were looking also quite similar. Correct. Even though we know nowadays that the genome, etc., is quite Diff- far away from yeah. each other. So yeah. German Shepherd and Belgian Malinois genetically don't have a lot of things in common, if I'm if I'm right, there is a very interesting um, book that was released last year um, from a scientist. Uh, 
can't remember her name. Pa okay. Parker. I will. I will send you the, sure. the title. And and um, because they they compared. I'm really excited about this, but I <laughs> I, I know so I know so little, um, so I shouldn't blame myself. But they compared the FCI groups, and I believe in the in the Kennel Club, the American Kennel Club, etc. You have quite similar groups. Yeah. Um, splitting dogs, and if you have a closer look, it's it's obvious that these dogs were just um, um, this, these groups were just created by looking at the dogs mm -hmm. and using them for different purposes, but not regarding their their genetics. Yeah, of course, because a hundred years ago people did different things. Um, so depending on the lobby of the dog, you had a bigger group. So you find in the FCI, you find like seven groups of different hunting dogs. Yes. And then you have sheep dogs and herding dogs yep. and some Nordic dogs. <laughs> but the rest is, is, is all hunting. So I think that was quite funny. And, and you have some scales and diagrams in this, in this book, um, how to understand breeds in a modern way, where you see the connection and the the pedigree, the family tree of mm -hmm. the genome, um, which is very interesting. And things like giant schnauzer and the casual schnauzer or a small schnauzer, mm -hmm. they look similar, but they have a different um, origin. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yes. A, like a Doberman or a yep. Pinscher. They look yep. the same, but they're different breeds. Yeah. There it's obvious. And also a Malinois or a German Shepherd are just different. And it's funny origins. because... It's amazing what selective breeding has done to just a, a single breed itself, like the German Shepherds, you know, when yeah. they started becoming selectively bred for show qualities and whatever the judges in a show liked, which meant money for the winner who was the owner of that dog. It really changed. And that's where many Americans... <laughs> on the working dog side struggle with working with AKC because mm. AKC in many on the working dog side of things look at it as one of the main reasons we've lost some of the major important working, working qualities that we've wanted okay. in our dogs. And, but the AKC is a huge entity with tons and tons of money. They even have lobbyists in our government yes. now. And okay. because of this, it's a hard thing to change. So what ends up happening is you have your significant segments of breeders who don't care about AKC papers, and then you have the ones who do, and the ones that typically do um, have a at least some level of interest in how the dogs show when it comes to yeah. the the appearance of the dogs. Because you can look at a, like a Labrador, for example, that we both talked about we like, a show Labrador looks nothing. I mean, it looks yeah. so different than a true working Labrador. Like a hunter, yeah. most hunters would not use those Labradors you see. They look like beer kegs with legs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they're just round. There's not. There's like little legs now, and it is it, not conducive through for hunting tests and things like that. But yeah. it's still amazing, though. Like in Germany, I know with like the wired at the Drothar. There's, yeah. there is still significant, very difficult hunting tests that are required. And those that are listening yes. or watching, Drothar means wired hair pointer. And, and actually, with the pointers, we go back to the to the question he actually asked me. Yeah. Um, so, if I remember right, what you asked me, um, 
the thing in Europe is, and of course I have a, a limited knowledge of, of I, I can't talk for all the units. Uh, I know that there are some pointers, for example, in the um, uh, in the Austrian border guard. Yep. Um, and the thing is with with pointers, for example, for mine, I I actually did make the hunter's license to be allowed to get the dog. Okay. And this is not a law, but this is a restriction that many um, serious and professional breeders and um, yeah ask for mm -hmm. um, if you don't have a hunter's license, etc. So either you use the dog for a hunting purpose or you can use the dog for an other working purpose. And you don't see a lot of these dogs in, in, in officials and neither mm -hmm. in law enforcement nor in, in, in the military working dog community. And I can't tell you why. So the traditional breeds are still Malinois mm -hmm. and, and German Shepherds, but they're getting more and more to the monopurpose yep. dogs. And therefore, they start to gain some experiences with Labradors. And here and there, you see, you see a German pointer. And that's mm -hmm. why I can't tell you uh, what the thing is with the health. Yeah. So most of the pointers, most of the Labradors are used in the hunting dog community. Um, so I should ask there yeah. because I'm not that much that deep in, into these things. <clears throat> what would be based on what you're seeing now? Um, what had, what would you say is probably the most popular breed for the single purpose detection um, outside of the Malinois German shepherd in the, what we call the floppy ear dogs. <laughs> yeah. What What is, what are you seeing uh, from your point of view in your region or your part of Europe as what, what breed is pretty popular for detection over there? Um, again, Austria is, 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 has to be looked at a little differently because um, there are few mono yeah. dogs, but if you find them, they're floppy ears and they're mm -hmm. most of the time Labradors. So there are some projects at our army where you find uh, Labradors, also the, the uh, is it con translated correct? Zoll, like border guard? Oh, okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we, like you would say like the, like obviously during the uh, Bundespolizei or border patrol or customs. Yeah, border patrol, customs, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, customs, customs was where I was yeah. looking for. And um, I have colleagues and friends from the Swiss transport police and actually they have, um, they have also dual dogs, dual mm -hmm. purpose dogs, but mm -hmm. the monopurpose dogs are all Labradors. Okay. 100%. And it makes sense because, you know, you're always in public places. You're, you're mm -hmm. traveling with the dogs in the trains, on the train stations, um, just being around all the time. So you don't need dogs that are reactive on their yes. environment. Yeah. And, and that's also one of the big advantages with the hunting dogs. They're like really focused on what they should do and it's searching and they're not well they can be attracted of course to to human and and food and all kinds of these distractions um but they wouldn't show any aggression to yeah someone um running mm -hmm. past or mm -hmm. or things like this i think that's also one of the bigger advantages that that units start to realize and i think since Many units need to start to think different. Um, as we started our talk before recording, the, the 
uh, fighting community, etc. I don't know how how bright the future is for these dogs. So units who want yeah. to use dogs have to think in detection ways, I guess. Yeah, and, and therefore, the, yeah, yeah. As I say, and over there now, um, what we refer to as forensic detection, uh, things like blood detection, semen detection, electronics detection. Um, different levels of human scent, you know, scent that's 48 hours or less, uh, things that this is is pretty popular. I would say popular is the right word, but it gets used a whole lot more than it does in the United States. We almost don't have any dogs like this except for a few things. Um, but okay. over where you're at, um, these types of specialty, these like evidence collection forensic type dogs have gained it a lot more in popularity Um because I think in, in some cases, one, your law enforcement willing to use dogs to collect evidence in this way uh, to the experience that you guys have when it comes to detection dogs and willing to take it to another level like this. Um, do you see that growing more in Europe too? these types of dogs, these specialty types of detection dogs? Yeah, definitely. And, and this is, uh, you know, this is like gravity. These things can <laughs> always come up from north falling down. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here, here in Austria, we still have to wait a little longer until until the physics let us um, <laughs> until that, have the pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, it comes down these, to you guys. Now, do you guys so, have um, some specialty dogs like this? Like, obviously, I would think probably electronic detection is something that you guys have in some form or another. Not yet. Wow. Actually, not okay. Yet, not wow. yet. Yeah. Because um, it's all around you for I sure. Would, I wouldn't say we are behind, but. Um, well, you guys yeah. are. Sm I mean, it's smaller, so I know. Therefore, like comparative to um, Germany or Holland or some of these places yes. where these yes. disciplines are popular, or not. Yeah. Again, popular is not the right word, but they're growing. Um, I think. I think what Austria does, for example, if I, if I may, yeah, go speak ahead. for Austria, is that. Um, we we always look to Germany mm -hmm. to to the bigger sister or brother yep. and see how things change there. Um, so we can always learn from their experiences and then decide yeah we do it or we do it not. Yeah, uh, which isn't always the smartest thing to do I guess. But um, uh, well, the dog that I sold the Labrador um, she will be a, a data evidence detection dog oh, for example. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm really interested into these things, um, yeah. and we will see when our officials will will make it. But I think the 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 center of these um, these new branches in detection mm -hmm. is Northern Europe. It's it's UK. It's Scandinavian yeah. countries. It's Denmark, Netherlands, things mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. and also in in Germany, where I was last week, they now started to do the first project dogs. Um, one or two dogs that they try to do the data evidence thing with, mm -hmm. and it's growing. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Well, there's just because, like I like I share over here in the states, is so much criminal activity. It's not just about you know in the states. Everybody thinks when they think of electronics detection dog, they think, oh, it's about you know child porn and you know keeping. Um, uh, child molesters away from the kids and their means to do this. There is so much even beyond that that these dogs are used for financial crimes, uh, terrorism, uh, narcotics yeah. now because of uh, cryptocurrencies and all 
and every, we leave digital dust everywhere. And yes. these types of dogs are phenomenal in locating something that's very difficult for the human to locate because a micro SD card is not much bigger than a fingernail. And then your ability to hide this is only limited by your imagination. And yeah. it doesn't put out a ton of odor. So you need a really good type of dog to work an environment like this. And I, and I think the, uh, the trainers like you're talking about, you know, people up in the northern part of Europe uh, who have really embraced a lot of this type of detection work um, has really put the information out. One of my good friends, Stefan Peterson from the uh, Dutch police, he's one of the yeah. major uh, players and pioneers in that research because for the longest time in the States, everything was about training the dogs on TPPO. And as they tested and learned, there really wasn't a whole lot of science behind that decision. It was just like, well, that's what a chemist said was there. We, we should train yeah. on that. And as they got into the research of that a lot more, it turns out that was not the chemical to train on. Uh, there was better chemicals that really helped. And uh, even right now in the States, uh, Dr. Paula Tiedemann, uh, they'll be publishing a paper, or not paper, but standards here pretty soon that will also mm. list the additional chemicals and kind of push TPPO not away, Aside. but just as yeah. an elective odor, not a required odor like it used to be. All right. Because of That's that change, because of the science now that existed, because nothing wrong with why they started that way. You know, over here, it was the Connecticut State Police that started it for us. And yeah. they reached out to their chemists and they said, hey, what chemical's prevalent? And they said, oh, this chemical's prevalent. But it wasn't a chemical that really bled over. And there was no research between dog to what the chemist was saying was coming off the product versus what the dog was truly smelling and yes what's happened since then is now we know we have two years of research thanks to the dutch police that show us an even better path um now the funny part is despite what the research is out there and this isn't just unique to electronic media detection but it's yeah. funny when when you show somebody who's used a method for a long time uh, or used a training odor type for a long time, and you say, hey, guess what? We have put a lot more information and testing and, and data into this. Turns out this chemical or this technique is actually more efficient. It's mm -hmm. super hard for programs to change. You know, it, it's almost like the ego gets in the way and says, well, we don't want to change because we think it works just fine the way it is despite what the data and evidence shows you. Um, mm. And then over time, people change or, or the positions, you know, a person moves on and gets promoted or whatever, and then eventually change occurs. But that's one of the big things I look at that's different between Europe and the United States when it comes to detection is you guys as a whole have embraced a lot more of the research aspect of things. Let's find out what's a better answer. And it's not perfect either. I mean, I've, I've talked to many no. of, of no. my friends over there too who say, hey, look, yes, we are maybe more progressive than you guys and we're more willing to examine what we do, but we also have a hard time making changes as well. So the, the problem, you know, is somewhat similar, but you know, I sit on my side of the Atlantic going, I wish we would do more like they do over there, be more willing to. But you guys have also been doing detection in the way you've been doing it a lot longer than we have. So part of this evolution is because you guys have made the mistakes longer than we have. So there's that. Maybe, maybe. 
And yeah. you know that the grass is always green on the other. <laughs> That's so true. So, <laughs> and it's so. funny you, you say that because I'm going to bring up what, I, what you've been sharing every day for the past many months is you've been reading the book Canine Biosensors. And um, that's not an easy read. That's a no. That's why it took me so long. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's it's a. It, I mean, it'll warp your brain a little bit, won't it? I mean, there's a lot of information in that book. Different chapters by very uh, well-renowned um, scientists and dog trainers and things like that. Um, and it's and I know what you're saying about the grass being greener because on on our side, you guys see we have lots of researchers that are really getting into dogs um, more so than you see you see from Europe. Europe has them too. It just all of a sudden now the United States, we're gaining popularity with some of our uh, doctors like Lauren DeGrieff and Dr. Yes. Tiedemann and Dr. Hall and on and on, uh, Dr. Michelle Mann and others. And that's helped us. But it's so funny. You, you can bring these individuals, like there a couple of them were just at uh, one of the largest canine conferences here in the States. And it so much good information, but at the same time, very difficult for most to understand. So there's that translation piece. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I, I, I really, I loved reading the book. I had a hard time in the first part where it was a lot of comparing technical devices with the <laughs> biosensors yeah. and the different thresholds. And, um, but I think it's, it, well, it obviously is very interesting and, and you can just learn. I don't know if you can apply everything. True. But if you're able to filter the important uh, informations for, for the dog training, um, well, then it's very useful to, oh, yeah. to do this. And yeah, so still, I think I'm getting back to the, the, the thing with the States and Europe. Yeah. It really depends on where you are. So, um, well, Europe, Europe is not is not that small. The states are far bigger, of course, more states and bigger, bigger countries. Mm -hmm. um, but still, it, it varies in Europe a lot. As we said, there are differences not only in the breeding component mm -hmm. of eastern and western parts, but also in the northern and southern parts. So I have the pleasure again to travel to Greece, to Athens mm. this fall. I'm doing a workshop there in search and rescue and um, functional obedience. And yeah, and 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 uh, I, I wouldn't say the mentality. So of course nowadays with Facebook, etc., yeah. people have a, a better view on things. Ah, oh, people do it different over there. Yeah. Um. So things change faster now, but um, the mentality and the, the techniques and also how to live with the dog, because I think that how to live with dogs, how to treat them, has a big impact on how to work them. Yeah. So. Um, and as I said before, I, I grew up in the, the cotton ball thrower community, <laughs> which is who are, who are real softies, and um, um, and that makes a, a difference. And depending on where you are, sure. So, well, let me ask you this: What's your favorite type of detection work? Hmm. Huh. <clears throat> That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> You know, sometimes um, I think reasons why I am doing this right now is because I'm never satisfied. So everything that I do and accomplish, um, I wouldn't say bores me, mm -hmm. but for now I would be really interested in these forensic 
different different branches yeah. in forensic detection um and well me and two colleagues well stefan chris and i will go to to do a um uh, what's it called we will get the certificate to buy and own and deal with uh, explosives okay so also this will be an interesting thing for us next year um so everything that's new is is my favorite because <laughs> there i can well it goes back to like you said you, you love learning so when yeah, these things yeah. are new it gives you a lot of excitement to go learn it so yeah. what has been your favorite that you've done so far? Not what you get to go do, but what have you really enjoyed? Uh, either narcotics, explosives, bed bug. What's been something that you found mm. that you really liked? Of course, all the things concerning narcotics and explosives, they are, these are the sexy branches in detection. <laughs> of course. Because yeah. that's the, the law enforcement. Um, that's uh, handling a dog with a weapon on your belt, etc. Yeah. So that's always the cool thing. Also working with these guys, I, I really, I really enjoy doing this. But for myself, I actually really enjoy doing the backpack thing. Yeah. Um, it's first of all, it's something that you can do as a civil person. Um, there is a business obviously behind it. Yeah. And it's it's a good thing to do. Um, the cool thing is that we are we are searching for live animals. Mm -hmm. um, we're not looking for something someone hit, but that doesn't make things easier. Yeah. So the, the target scent that we are looking for has a very low threshold and um, isn't easy to find always. So I really enjoyed this. Um, also seeing how the dogs develop um, after the deployments, getting better, showing new ideas. And uh, yes, I think f right now for, for myself, for me personally, this is one of the favorite things in detection mm -hmm. that uh, to deal with. Also, being able to collect the bugs when you find them. And <laughs> yeah, that's always lots of fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about the ones that you didn't mean to collect? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's Never happened so far. Yeah, no, it's, it's been lucky. We've had, uh, you know, that's a question I get a lot when people reach out to me about cool. being a uh, bed bug detection dog handler. Was how they uh, they yeah. deal with that, and then. Yeah. Um, before you know those of us in this episode prior to this episode uh there's a bed bug detection episode that i did and um we talked about that you know what the types of areas they search dealing with potential do do bugs get attached to you what about the dog yeah. all that kind of stuff and we covered that in that episode so it was funny because it's just one of those common questions you get is like well what about if they get on me or my dog and i don't want to bring it home well how much cleaning <laughs> of myself and my dogs do i have to do because of that so yeah. the uh so what would you say has been one of your most challenging things that you've had to do in detection like what's been something that you're like whoo Training this is is difficult, or at least uh, you know challenged you as a handler and trainer. Um, generally, in training, dogs. yeah, whatever. So, I really like to try many things, mm -hmm. and with all of my dogs, I use my dogs for some deployment work uh, concerning the bed bugs, for example, because. For me as a civil person, that's that's one of the possibilities where I can gain experience in deploying dogs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important thing. But I, I try all kinds of dogs. So my dogs are more likely demonstration dogs. Their their performance is is never the best 
but very good. Yeah. And because we do different things. So the most challenging thing for me was the verbal directionals. Ah, yes. Um, that I trained my, my Malinois for. And uh, we worked through the plan of Jens. Yeah. And that was really challenging. Um, according to also train other things and, and keeping my dog on a, on a level where I can still seriously deploy the dog and took some time. And uh, yeah, that was that was very tough. And, and still, I talked about it last week. I, I watched some of the older uh, training clips and it's a lot of fun doing it, yeah. but it's it's such a long way, at least with the first dog, to yeah. to run through the plan and to see, okay, there are some difficulties there. You could work faster with the next dog. Um, again, there you should put some more attention on to make the dog sit straight and mm -hmm. uh, less less helping cues yeah. and so on. The double directionals are really tough. The laser detection was very easy because you always have the target given yes. and it's straight lines. Yes. But sending the dog out of sight, left, right, stop, turn 180 degrees, up, down. All stop, doing it by radio, search. right? You guys had a radio yeah. on with you and the dog, yeah. Yeah, radio and and also then, because we, we have built our own camera system mm -hmm. um, that we will also sell sooner or later. Ah, there um, you go. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> um, watching the dog um, just just watching the dog's view and understanding how to guide the dog is is very hard i remember yeah. playing computer games back then uh -huh. and and the racing games so with the racing games you could change camera side um, oh yeah from behind, behind the car yeah. like third person view or in the cockpit yeah or no cockpit just like being on the number plate on the front of the car yeah and that's what you see when you have the dog Yes, it's the it's the so dog you, point of view. Yes, yeah. and it's first person view, and yeah. that's because dogs move so fast. That's a big uh, challenge, actually. Oh yeah. Um, well, especially fun. when you're trying to give direction based on what you're watching the dog do. You know, you don't have an overhead shot unless you got a drone up or you're following it yeah, from a different exactly. camera. Yeah. But it, and it's funny you bring this up because I've had Simon Prins out here, and I would say Simon Prins and uh, Pat Nolan are, are kind of those guys who really went through it back in the day when it, I think it was much harder. Um, there wasn't as much technology to mm -hmm. help. Um, Simon definitely went through a lot of like, I mean, cause this was, so the, the backstory to that is I met him in 1999 at the Dutch police dog center and he mm -hmm. was just starting. He had, he had uh, uh -huh. the little traffic cones okay. set up and he yeah. was setting that up to do directionals. And, you know, like he said, at that time, there was only two ways to train a dog in the Dutch police. That was a uh, correction and a harder correction. So like he was saying, he goes, uh, how do I do this from a, a very far distance? And on top of that, mm -hmm. back in those days, the e-collars weren't even really uh, – Mm -hmm. a, an easy tool to use because it, you couldn't change levels. You couldn't, you had to take a plug out, put a different thing in and then use that as mm -hmm. the way you change levels. So anyway, like he was saying is he had to come up with a better way. And then, you mm -hmm. know, as, as those that know him know that then he found his way to Bob Bailey. And then of course that changed everything for him. Um, and guys like him and Pat, you know, Pat's version of that story of his version was, you know, if he could train that Falcon that he had a bird to do things at a distance, 
there's got to be a better way than he learned as a hunter to train a Labrador to go out and do the yes. stuff that he was doing in the field trial stuff. And what I'm trying to get to is, you know, we we do have some really cool ways to do it, but the directionals is still a fairly new thing in detection dogs. Yes, yes, at least on how we put it, because distance work is very traditional yeah. in, in herding dog yes. communities and, and also what Pet did with the retriever work and the bird dogs. They worked on distance, um, but they were worked on site yeah. as well. So you 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 used your hands and arms mm-hmm. and whistle, etc. But really, working the dog out of sight of distance, um, teaching the dog to take orders to left, right, mm-hmm. straight, stop, turn, and from the dog's point of view, is is uh, a oh, different yeah. thing. And but it's very interesting. So I like these challenges and. Um, um, I, I need a new dog to. <laughs> to <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I've, I've been. Again. I, well, I'm in the. So I have, you know, right now I have Ammo, who's a working Cocker Spaniel. I'm going to yeah. be doing electronic detection with him. And like you said, oh, wow. for me, he's yeah. going to be like my demo dog to go mm-hmm. with to classes for agencies over here in the United States to show a dog like him working. Um, I have Ranger who's a now he's only six months old. I just started sharing my progress, like how I'm starting him. And mm-hmm. he's going to be a blood is detection. The, the, What's that? Is it this yellow? Is it yeah, he's that one copy? I post. I yeah, posted I just, recently. Yeah. 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 Nice. I watched the videos. Yeah. So he's going to be a blood detection dog and he's going to be used on a two different projects between. So Dr. Uh, Lauren DeGrief is doing a project on blood and age and then Dr. Paula Tiedemann is doing blood and its reaction to different types of surfaces. And then mm-hmm. my dog will be tested on age through Lauren's experiments and then through surfaces on Paula's experiments. Mm. So Great. we're just going to see what the dogs do or what my dog does in this. But at the same time, I have Gamble, which is my black lab. Uh, he mm-hmm. was my firearms dog that I trained for the project with Dr. Tiedemann that was the first project or first research on firearms detection. Um, ironically, we found out, of course, the government had their own firearms detection uh, research, but it was classified. Uh, the one that we were doing came out to the public, and mm-hmm. what we, we know stuff that we learned um, became now is now changing certifications in the United States. You know, because there, there was a thought process when it came to firearms. Uh, a short version was you had to train the dogs on the powders, train them on the black powder, smokeless powder. And yeah. we realized, you know, in the research and things like that, that that was actually not even a really relevant chemical. You know, the <laughs> gunshot residue, the burned powder was much stronger, much better. And in mm-hmm. all the surfaces of the gun and all the gun parts and the shell casings and all these things that were highly important, that's what you train on. Mm-hmm. And we and we got to prove that that was actually better and more efficient than trying to do- train the dog on powders. And then the problem when you run into when you train a dog on the black or smokeless powder was technically you've also created a bomb dog because many of the yes. explosive devices were trained were using these chemicals. So it, it was it's tricky. Yeah. So half my dogs have come from research projects, but at the same time, I'm like you. I'm like, huh? I want to get in deeper into directionals and. Yeah especially to help the search and rescue community because over here there FEMA is probably the one of the bigger ones our, our federal emergency management mm-hmm. association they're they're the bigger ones that use directionals but 
there's a lot of techniques that have not changed in a long time. And seeing the things that Simon and, and uh, uh, Pat and Jens and Tobias and all of those who have really been working on directionals using audible tones, using radio, mm-hmm. using the video and drones, it's the next level. It's that next ele- evolution part for those yeah, that are in search yes, and rescue that so. really could could use this type of work. So part of me wants to train Gamble because he's a Labrador and he's easy to work mm-hmm. with. I, I yeah. want to do him with that. Or like you said, but I don't have the time for this part of it. I want to get a new dog and I can do it with that. So <laughs> the smart, the smart yeah, version yeah. of Cameron is just going to start off and, and do, um, you know, kind of go through as a handler in a sense, the learning process and do it with gamble and then share that progress just like you would with, you know, uh, people who follow me or, or go to the Ford canine school for stuff, um, showing them directionals and I'm going to do it with, with that dog. So just like you, it's, it's fun to get these new dogs to go do these challenges with. Definitely. Yeah. So Definitely. now one of the things I was going to get to that's different in the, you know, as we were talking about, you know, cultural differences between, you know, us and, and Europe, I would so you guys definitely spend considerable amount of more time training a dog in a discipline. What would you say the average time? And I know this is different depending on the discipline, um, but from everything I've always learned in living over there, you guys will spend a in many cases a year training a dog in a detection skill before you really go out and deploy it operationally, sometimes longer, maybe a little less, depending on, again, the skill. But it's just a mindset. You guys are will put in the time and put in lots of training to invest to get that much more reliable asset of a dog out there when you go operational. Yeah, I think many factors play, play in here. So I think, first of all, of course, it depends depends on when you get the dog and when you start training with because yep. I really enjoy building puppies yeah. or training puppies and and then you well you don't lose the time I think it's a big win if, if the dog is healthy you will have a big achievement in in putting your own handwriting on the dog yes um, and um, also something that I that I see doing is from all of my dogs, but also the dogs of my of our clients, the longer we do it, the faster we get better results. And, sure. And and that's a must-have, I think. It, it would be a problem if it was the other way around, um, or if if you wouldn't have a faster progression. Um. So. But maybe, and I don't have that much experience in the states. Um. A friend of mine, Josh, and you know Josh Church, I think yes, he was in yes. some yep. or some of your courses. Yeah, and I met him in Sweden. Um, great guy. Yeah, uh, he he was also with us uh, last year here, yes. here in Vienna. Um, but I was uh, amazed that um, he he once told me that one of his dogs was uh, maybe even certified before one year of age. Oh yeah, um, that's like could be. I don't know. No, that's I don't, true. I don't want to. No, that's yeah. true because so that's the point I'm making is, it, you know, I, I make the joke all the time. Many who have listened to my podcast have heard me say this before, but the only thing that 
most police like better than a six-week detection dog school is a four-week detection dog school. They they want – if they could get away with doing it in two days, they'd be happy to do that too because now there's a reason for it. It, it isn't just because they want to go as fast as they can. The bigger picture problem is the departments are understaffed. There's not enough funding. Yes, sure. Um, yeah. So they need it's the same here. Yeah, they need the they need the person back doing the job that they're doing. So I I, I make that that comment and and we say is tongue in cheek, you know, in in a in a joking way, but there mm-hmm. is a serious problem in the sense yeah. that um, the mentality is how fast can I do it versus. Yeah. How well can I do it and how much time do I need to take? And like you said, um, for us, the difference between you guys in Europe and then the United States is United States, the vast majority of police dogs um, being trained and provided are done by a commercial vendor, mm-hmm. not okay. so much by the agency itself. There are plenty of departments that do their own training and have their own schools and, and train the dogs from zero. But there's also a significant population of teams who buy their dog and, or buy their dog fully trained and then go through a very short school. And this is a handler who knows nothing most times because I've been there. I've been one of those businesses mm-hmm. that provided dogs, you know, and I had to fight to get them to give me people for four weeks. I want them for double that time. Yeah, and, sure, and, I, and I'm sure. giving them a fully, but you know, even at four weeks, they're, they're getting a dog that's fully trained. Now mm. we both know when you take a dog, and it's been training with me, let's say for six or eight months, you know, whatever the time frame is, I've been training it. You know, I say me, me, or most times recently, it's my trainers. They've trained the dog, and then you put this dog with a new person. There's always going to be this adjustment period, and that usually sure. takes a few weeks for that adjustment period to start to show it's working. And right usually when it's starting, just starting to show it's working, they have to go. And then now they're mm-hmm. on their own. And in some cases, they may or may not have a trainer that they work with. They may be just a, a, a unit on their own. And that is what becomes super frustrating um, as a, you know, a person who really wants to invest in the training time and, and envious of programs uh, like what I've seen in Europe where they say, oh, no, we're, you know, this is a process. We have to spend, a, you know, this much time in this stage and then this much time yeah. in that stage. And, and it's normal. Why would we why would we go as fast as possible? We know that doesn't work, but it's yes, it hasn't caught on. Because and over here, like I said, there's different needs and different things, and I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about it, even though I kind of am. But I, I would just, I, I just want, you know, I guess my hope is more people watching and listening to this fight the good fight of saying, "Hey, look, I don't want to do this as fast as possible. I, I want to invest in the amount of time needed to be really good with my dog at this skill, not yeah. how fast I can do it." Yeah, and. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think it's not about being the fastest. This is not a race. Yeah. And in the end, we want to uh, create reliable behavior in dogs mm-hmm. to be really supportive. And, mm-hmm. and in the end, we will just shoot in our own knee if we deploy dogs who are not yet fully trained. And, and just to get back to the example that I brought, um, I don't want to put anyone in, in wrong light. Uh, I, I think 
Josh is very very skilled trainer. Oh I yeah, no, jo- Josh is example. great. Just no, giving he, this example. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It was such a young dog. Yeah, and I think there is there might be really a difference. Most of the tests in Europe um, that I know um, concerning sports, but also uh, working dogs for for offices, etc. The, the minimum age for the first tests is 12 months. Yeah. And and so then there you start with all this these things. And and also I think also the and this will be interesting because I'm sure these things will change. Um since now units start to buy puppies and younger yeah. dogs. Yeah. Because of the animal welfare laws and they don't mm-hmm. want dogs where they don't know how they have been trained yet and with aversive tools, etc. and so on. Um I think now there will be some tests for younger dogs, like like a, uh, yeah aptitude tests for yeah. for younger dogs to see how they develop after the t- first two months of training mm-hmm. and having having them X-rayed the first time maybe between five or six months of age, and yeah and how how their drives um, develop and how their uh, reaction to environment um, develops, but. Yeah, maybe maybe we take some more time. I always think to myself, I should try to be a little faster. But <laughs> funny thing, funny thing is that the the plans that we follow, for example, yeah. the, the basic detection plan, yeah, is um, it covers so many topics that, for example, my bedbug detection dogs will never need. But um, so I train with almost all dogs outdoor searches, buried heights. Mm-hmm. Um, we search, we search on outerior uh, of cars and uh, we search roads with dogs that will be deployed as um, bed bug detection dogs. Why? Well, we lose time doing this, but on the other hand, the dog just learns to operate everywhere and grows a bigger expectancy of, ah, I can find sources here and there and, mm-hmm. and everywhere. Um, the consistency in all the training is the handler and the cue for search. Yeah, and I think that's how they—that's how we might lose time because we do more than necessary. But on the other hand, the dogs just get more reliable. Yeah, maybe. Well, you, and, you bring up a good point—the the fact that they realize you guys spend time teaching that your target odor can be in all kinds of places everywhere even in places that they will actually truly never go search later on but you're but it's a critical skill to learn how to use their nose in these different types of um, environments It, it makes them better for the environment that they actually will go in in most cases and that's that's one of the discussions i i i love to go into because um people say well we don't have that much time and and our target odor will never be found in environments like this, blah, blah, blah. And yes, they are right. They lose time and they will not uh, deploy their dogs in these environments. But um, working with um, training aids like, like pseudosense or rubber, mm-hmm. con- det- uh, rubber mm-hmm. scent detection or whatever you use, and also training the dog in different environments just makes it easier for yourself to train yeah. and makes it easier to not to get too much of contextual training. Yes. So you're always going to the same training sites. Yes. Um, you're always going to the same train station and having your dog searching the same uh, waste buckets and the mm-hmm. same toilets and the same locker rooms, etc. No. Now you can just, um, I call these the supermarket exercises or the, the, the gas station exercises. 
you just go and and put diesel in the car you hide a few pieces maybe on the back side of the shop mm -hmm. then you pay put up the dog have a short search of maybe half a minute and what did your dog learn get out of the car pee poo mm -hmm. search yeah. <laughs> and 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 nothing better could happen but the the experience for the dog and the expectancy well we can work everywhere we are not reliable on on the context of where we are yeah. because it works everywhere and for the handlers this is the big benefit because they start to get more creative and they can work the dogs everywhere and are not um yeah reliable on their training sites on the training school or on the department where they work you brought up that's a it's a huge point and it brings me right into what i wanted to get into now so like you said you went to swdi you worked with jens and and uh, tobias and i mean tobias is a phenomenal trainer jens as well um they have a very um particular program uh, I would say Tobias is probably a little more strict. Just in this is just my observation. I could be wrong, but Tobias seems to be very. I do it this way, and that's and it's good. I'm don't. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying he's very particular. This is the process I do. This is exactly how I do it. There is no deviation, and this is the type of dog I do it with. Jens is has a little more flexibility to it. And it might be because of what, why his business is the way it is, you know, because he works with a lot of different types. So he needs to have some more flexibility to what uh, he's offering. But the main point both those guys always make, and along with many others, is odor needs to be able to be found anywhere. The funny part mm -hmm. is when I, when I, I sit back and kind of giggle sometimes is for Tobias, if you look at 90% of his videos, it's just searching the brick wall over and over and over and over and over and over again. And yeah. that is very important to him and it's very important to the system and that's what the important party shares. Um, but what, I, what I'm getting to is if you, go, if you follow him on YouTube just a few years ago when he was with Jens, he was using wheels. He was using walls. He was using a lot of. He yeah. was using the different things out there. Um, Jens, I know, does definitely does both still. You, because you've seen these things, what has made you say you know? Because Tobias virtually now never uses a verbal marker. I don't want to say he hates it because that's not the right word. He uses markers through tactile. He's pulling the yes. collar. He's touching the dog. He's Bridging, he's yeah. yeah. He's using a ritual of tactile as his marker. But what's funny was when if you again you go back in time a little bit, thanks to YouTube, you can watch videos <laughs> where he's using markers. He's using a verbal yes. marker, and he talks about the importance of needing both to, to yes. be able to reward directly and to be able to utilize a verbal <laughs> marker for whatever the reason is. He's virtually abandoned. The, a verbal marker or even a clicker or a whistle. Um, and he, and I did a podcast with him and he talked about a little bit about why, but yeah. you have a perspective and I've seen you stay really flexible. So why, why did you go that way? And, and what have you seen in that? Because you came from the school. These are one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, I think we, I could give you a very simple answer. Uh, <laughs> give me whatever answer you want. <laughs> um, and the, the answer would be what Jens would say is it depends. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I agree with that. So 
I don't. I hope again, neither Jens or Tobias will uh, will punish me for this. But <laughs> um, as far as I know them, and the, the first time um, being in contact with the SWDI, I I did a nine month course with Tobias in Tuscany in Italy, mm-hmm. um, and then after that I met Jens in 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 autumn of the same year. So <clears throat> I think. If you have a look on both of them, Jens is a generalist. Um, he's he's maybe similar as I am. I he's doing more different um, yeah. a lot of different dogs. types he's of doing detection. Yeah, detection, tracking, different kinds of tracking, bite work, laser to detect, laser to bite, verbal directionals to detect, um, and being the do you know the, the the mailman? So the, the the verbal guided dog that is carrying around objects, yes, like yep. cameras or, or yeah. other things. Simon does a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So things like this, and I think Tobias is a specialist. Tobias is yeah. a specialist for detection and multiple surface tracking. Um, so that's the one thing, and. A thing that I have learned from both of them is is the whole approach. So I try not to make an opinion about a, a topic in the topic because if you why why is, is is Jens using verbal cues and also verbal secondary reinforcers or mm-hmm. markers as, as you say and Tobias is not. If you train a dog that works on distance, you need yeah. a dog to be able to get a cue, a verbal cue to search. And if the dog is a hundred meters away, you will not throw in the toy resource. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, if you, if you do, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> you, you should pl- be there probably doing some kind of sport. <laughs> but, but um, if not, so you need a secondary reinforce, a, yes. a reward announcement, a whistle, a clicker, um, yep. a, a verbal cue um, via radio. So mm-hmm. that would be the, the simple um, uh, answer. It really depends on what you will do with the dog, where you will deploy the dog, and if there is any chance of working the dog on distance. Here you go. Yep. The dog should be at least trained um, both both ways with a signal uh, with a hand guided cue yep. and and verbal cues. And the thing, one of the the biggest things I'll, I've learned so far is um, the approach of training. So if we if I work with the different units or organizations, I always ask them, what's the main purpose of the dog? Mm-hmm. What's the list of skills the dog should be able to fulfill or the team, not only the dog, but the team? Um, how can we, how does a, a test for testing these major skills look like? Mm-hmm. Then we make the progression plan to prepare the dog for the test. And when we have this, we can select a dog that is able to fulfill the, these these things. But um, the, the the important thing about this list is that we have the idea of of the list of skills. And if I know that, then I can choose. Well, I do it like I see it on the video clips. Just tap search. Yep. But as soon as I think, well, maybe I will send my dog in distance. Mm-hmm. You should include the verbal cue. Yep. I think. And so it so it depends. Um, and yeah, so this is this, and the, the thing with the brick walls, etc. 
and and different apparatuses. Is yep. that, is yep. this a word? Correct. Yeah. Uh, is well, how how to, how to compare it? These are like very efficient parts of the whole plan. Yeah. But it's just a part of the plan. Yes. And you know, it's like when you, for example, when you see uh, you have an interview with uh, with a coach from a soccer team or as we say in Europe football yep um, um, and you see some so short clips from the team mm -hmm. training it's always the same exercises it's um, running in in with with small steps but high pace yeah the, the tripling um, it might be um, standing in a circle one person is in the middle and tries to catch the ball and the others are just kicking the ball around. And so these are the, like the, the typical exercises in, in soccer to do the warm up. But if you would have a look on the, on the progression plan or the training plan, there are like hundreds of more exercises oh, yeah. that they sure. do. And, and that's the same, I think with the detection when watching Tobias or Jens, there are some major exercises that they show and share and also, I like to use, for example, the brick wall because mm -hmm. the brick wall, I teach the dogs the, the first searches. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we cut down or we, we smaller the size of the target mm -hmm. to search for. Um, we can now choose different kinds of reinforcers. So I can throw to the source, but yep. I can also click to the Yes, handler. correct. I will add different um, controls or distractor sense. Yep in the wall with different classes so easy medium hard mm -hmm. uh, distractor sense i will add bridges during the search mm -hmm. but also during the indication so yeah. i'm walking around i'm talking while the dog is searching i have other people's walking around i add some strange undergrounds um empty plastic bottles things that make noises when walking over them having an other dog with me uh then we add the first blank searches, then we add the variable reinforcement schedule. So the dog is not always rewarded, even though the the task mm -hmm. is perfectly fine. Yep. So we can all do these things in this technical part of the brick wall. And if you have a look on our video clips, then you would think, wow, 95% of what they do is brick walls. Um, but I'll, I'll say so. with, with the exception of Tobias, I, I agree. Uh, for whatever reason, though, Tobias pretty much also hates wheels. I mean, he actually makes it a point to say, there's a problem with using a scent wheel. Never use a wheel. Wheels are basically should be thrown in the trash can, even though, like you said, yeah. part of his progression. But that's I think that comes – I can't speak for him. And I know you can't either. My no. guess from the podcast with him is because of his being such a specialist in what he does – and I think he's also built a brand of who he is as a trainer comes from so much of the brick wall. And if he did a lot of the scent wheel, then that, for whatever reason, may not be the message he wants to give or whatever. Mm. Where you, Jens, myself, and others, just like you said, all of these things are part of that a stage in training. You know, I use a wall instead of a brick wall. I have a PVC. I have those little tubes. So yes, I, yes. I, I like that better than a brick wall because I can change those out really easy. I don't sure. have to like have a bunch of old bricks that I don't need anymore because I'm not building any mm. houses. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's it, again for me it's a sterility thing. I can keep things sterile and clean and yes. you know by using that. Um, 
I, I use, like you said, like you've probably seen two natural things, like for us, we call them lockers where you put stuff in. Mm-hmm. So it has all, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of little space. That specialized seam wall that I had built, which was uh, first, I saw that by the American ATF, the bomb dogs, they had those walls that they could mm-hmm. set up to put the little tins behind and they can put yeah. the tins in different spaces. So I, I took their idea and just added, so I could add holes to put glass jars behind it so I could do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But like you said, so whether it be a brick wall, a PVC wall, a seam wall, lockers, boxes, wheels, for me, all of those things, and I know for you, all of those things are highly valuable. It just depends on what stage you're in. Yes. For for you, what have what has been something that you know? Why have you liked the wheel and other things? Uh, what has been your? What do you see as as a positive, or why you use it in your training? Well, as I learned it, we used the wheel um, at the end of the plan for the basic training to do the the conditioning conditioning the target odors. Mm-hmm. So that's what we used it for. Um, and in the end, the, the sand wheel is just a, a round lineup. Yeah. Um, and it's so it could all of these things could also be done with the lineup yep. in the end. Um, it's just a new context. Correct. So it's not always That's the straight the, line. It's, yes. it's a little higher. It's yeah. not on the ground. It's it's Absolutely. circling around it. So it's not a big new thing. Um, well, but, and, it, and it brings this point up: predictable yeah. is boring. If we yeah. do the same context frequently to the dog. I don't care yeah. what it is, from boxes to yeah. brick walls. That was the video I made recently where I said the problem with brick walls, it was my little joke to Tobias or the other ones that were like <laughs> all about the brick wall only. And I say, yeah. no, the, and in the video I say the brick wall is fine. It's just like anything else yeah. though. If you, over, if you overuse something yes. and you make it predictable, the dog just won't give you the same level as it does if you change things more frequently. Yeah. And just like you said, I don't care who it is, whatever the trainer is, um, a lot of times, including myself, we share certain aspects frequently because that's what people want to see or people like seeing, or it's part of what a main part of our training is. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what I want listeners and viewers to kind of take away is all of these things are valuable. You know, like just like you said. Yes. Definitely. And so you, you said something like the wheel for you, and it's the same for me. It's kind of in that stage where we're getting ready for that testing of the odor recognition. You know, it's yeah. like you said, whether it be lineups or the wheel. And for you, and then the style and training that you learn from, the wall is kind of the earlier stage where you're teaching that higher sniffing frequency to be more methodical in their searches versus kind of just running all over the place and doing that. Is that correct? And is there more to that that you want to share? Uh, so if you have a look on, my, on, the do- on, the, on the two dogs I have now, they are five and two years old. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the Malinois is almost three. I, yeah, three. I think Ignaz had birthday yesterday. I don't okay. know. <laughs> um, and they, are, they look quite chaotic on mm-hmm. the brick wall um, because they do a lot of physical movements. Yeah. Um, just because when I trained them in detection, I I ran through the plans the first times. So already cool is a little more, little bit more structured than Ignatz and the female Labrador I had was 
way more structured than coolies. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a difference. So I would say yes. That the brick wall is the is the part of the exercise um, or the the plan where the dogs first of all start searching, sniffing high sniffing frequency, and also start to sniff where we start them. So mm-hmm. not just run to any random spot where yes. they think it might be, but yeah. to really start. And that's also the the thing where I, for example, use the tapping. Yes. Because I want the dog also to to understand. Okay, you can do. You can choose sometimes where you start to search if I don't give you a hint and yep. point somewhere. But when I do point somewhere, I really want you to um, search here first. Yeah. And from there, they can enlarge in their radius of search. And then um, I think that works quite well. I don't know if I've answered your question. That's, no, you did perfectly. And, and I loved it. That's a great way to answer it. And I think many of the people listening to this... Um, will really enjoy, you know, the points you're making, which is one, being understanding of whatever it is we're teaching our dog to go do, right? Whatever the detection discipline is, that's going to drive what our goals are in our training. The next part of that, as you were bringing up, was the process. There's different things that we're using in different stages of the training to work on particular types of skills, whether it be the odor recognition or sniffing or following my gestures, where to go, um, building intensity to the target odor. You know, that's another one. Um, And then understanding how to work with us. And then the other part that was awesome that you brought up was being creative as a handler and saying, I will put my target odor in any kind of environment, even though this may be an environment my dog never searches in, but it realizes that these areas can be productive. Now, I'll throw this at you as the last question. At what partly is what stage do you do that in? And then number two, because people that will listen to this or watch this may want to go try this with their dog. And when they do, their dog couldn't care less. Their dog's all distracted by the other scents that are there. You know, they're struggling because it's a different environment. How do you handle that? So what stage of training are you in? And how do you handle when it doesn't go the way you had hoped? Okay. So... First of all, we we plus minus um, do the same progression plan for all dogs, except for the EDDs. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because I don't want the, a dog to, I don't want a festival be cleared because a young girl forgot the the red kong of her labrador (laughs) well (laughs) it was funny you bring that up because that was one thing i I had to buy is basically say in the podcast which was well yeah if i'm going to train a bomb dog or in some cases even a drug dog i won't train them the kong you know that i won't do that from the beginning because of that potential problem yeah and still um when we built the the indication behavior we would make use of any any kind of toy mm-hmm. that the dog really, really likes. admires yeah. um, but first learns to cap it to sit there stands there whatever Absolutely. whatever the, the yes. handler chooses yeah whatever we have of the skill list um, and so these are already the first exercises that i put everywhere mm-hmm. because these exercises move stop feet move stop flip the toy um, 
we do them at the gas stations, at the supermarket parking lot, on the highway. Um, how, how to say, you know, when where you can take a rest yeah. from driving. So yeah, the, we call yeah. rest stop. Yep. Yeah, and 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 these rest stops, they're most of the time, at least in Europe, except for Scandinavian countries, they're always very dirty mm-hmm. and they're smelly. And and you get out of the car, um, it smells like piss. Yep. And the the waste baskets are overwhelmed yeah <laughs> and, oh yeah and and you have a lot of well you have the noises from the highway trucks and cars um racing past you so i like to use already for for the dogs just learning move stop feet move stop flip go and sit in front of the toy mm-hmm. on site in these different places so um and i think that's new that was one of the new things to what i did before because before I tried to really work in a very sterile environment. <laughs> yeah. Um, to, I know this because I've done the same this, thing. Yeah, to, to create the setting of learning. But always ask yourself when... So during learning, it might be smart, but how many reps does a dog need to learn and then understand what to do? Maybe it's doing a move-stop feet with yep. a puppy. Yep. The learning is like three reps. Yeah. And then you already ask for behavior. Yep. So then I can already start the generalization in different environments, distractors, etc. So there we do the same thing. We, we, we start with the indication exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have the, t- the time to do some first searches on the brick wall. As soon as this starts, again, I can do the same thing on the, on the tire of a car or at the back of the front grill of the mm-hmm. car. Mm-hmm. And making a setup, hiding many targets, getting the dog to the front of the car as I get the dog to the brick wall, yep. tap yep. and let the dog search. Yep. Um, or just cue the dog to search with a verbal cue. So I think it's um, we start we start the dirty work as soon as possible. Yes. I think we shouldn't wait too long because we create um, a wrong uh, expectancy in the dogs. Um and well, you, you're bringing up the point for so the listeners that are, are and wa- viewers that are watching this, the the great thing that you're bringing up here is you are creating because in that developmental stage before you started odor the the playing in the focus games, um, you did those in all those other areas. So then later on when yeah. you go back to odor, you've already created a understanding and an expectation that fun happens here, which, exactly. which makes your life a whole lot easier. The problem yeah. that happens many times is people, just like we talked about earlier, hear parts of what we're doing or they see little YouTube clips mm-hmm. and then they want, they've never done any playing or any development in these other areas. They go there for the first time, put odor out and go, I don't understand why it didn't work. My dog knows odor, but now it's not searching this environment. In fact, it's highly distracted. Well, yeah, <laughs> because it was missing a huge part of the the the, the training aspect that you yeah. already developed. Conditions. Yes, yeah. by by building those conditions. Now, yeah. just for the so those that are understanding, explain the move stop feet so people yeah. so they know what that means. Because yeah. so with this exercise, move stop feet as an example, and it's not the first pl- um, task in the plan, but with this exercise we teach the indication behavior so we put some kibble or desired food in our hand we Mm -hmm. show the dog that we have the food in our hand 
and we know what uh, what the is it the final response? Or yeah, whatever response? our our trained final response is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have defined that. So in in this example, we do it with a sit and stare. Mm -hmm. So I offer the hand to the dog. They chase it a little bit. Um, they chase it a little bit. So I do a short movement. That's mm -hmm. the move. And in the end, I just draw a shape of a U mm -hmm. in front of me. The dog follows my hand, and mm -hmm. then I do a snappy stop. Yep. So that's the cue yeah. in the end. Yeah. And the first few times the dog might try to get up to the hand and is a little bit active, but that's perfectly okay. That's the operant part of the game. Yep. Um, as soon as the dog realizes, okay, the hand is not opening um, for being active, the dogs settle down. Most of the times they just sit and stare to what they desire. Mm -hmm. And in this very second, I open the hand and feed the dog. Yep. I, I, I deliver the food to the dog because mm -hmm. also now the dog understands how I can sit with a little distance because reward is delivered. Yep. After the first two or three repetitions, I will start to do a reset if the dog gets active mm -hmm. because um, now I don't want this operant part to, to be a big thing in the learning history. So I would really reset this after the dog has been able to engage distance sits stairs and and being reported and that's the move feed exercise move stop feed exercise and the move stop flip is the very same just not with food but with a the toy with a toy that that triggers higher drive mm -hmm. so we first teach behavior with lower drive and um, to then put it on a higher drive toy and there's something else i would like to point out yes um, please um people sometimes mistake that they think we start with this exercises mm -hmm. with puppies um, or, or young dogs, but we don't. So the, the training before the detection training, and I think Tobias also mentioned it in his podcast, is before that we do a lot of drive development. Yeah. So we teach the dogs to play. I like to call it the structure of learning. Yeah. So the dog learns my different um, secondary reinforces, and I'm a big nerd about this. Yeah. So for almost for my personal dogs, I have four different secondary reinforces. Wow, multiple and markers, as they say. Yes. So yep, it's very important. They are they are food at the handler. Then it's a toy at the handler, or the external rewards, mm -hmm. food or toy. And for all of the those four, I have a different um, announcement. Yep. Because in in my head, at least, it makes sense for the dog to to have this reflex like response mm -hmm. and exactly know where to check for for Correct. the Correct. Less thinking, more doing. And so before the actual detection training and 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 creating uh, indication behavior. We do this um, motivation development, and already now I get the dog out of the car at the gas station, supermarket, uh, rest stop at the highway, and I just do a a clicker session with the dog. So mm -hmm. get out of the car, pee, poo. Yep. Now we do something. Yep. Um, I I click the the focus to the handler. I walk backwards around the car in a totally new environment. The dog spends no attention to anything happening around them, just having to focus towards me. Um, that's what I do with the puppies. Then as soon as they have lost their teeth or they're a little bit taller mm -hmm. and they would engage with a dog, I do just play sessions at the gas station. So yep. you have the strange smell of gasoline, 
um, you have cars approaching or, or going away, driving mm -hmm. away, and people stopping by looking. Yeah. And the dog just learns in these environments, having different distractions. The most beneficial thing to do is engage with the handler or with the toy, with the reward, with the prey, um, because that's what really solves every solution. So the dogs already learned really to focus on work before I give them the, the more difficult task of yeah, detection. What the job and, is. And I think young handlers, uh, as I was myself, of course, um, with the first dog, I I did it the other way around. I started detection <laughs> and then put the dog to distraction. Yeah. Um, and that's not the easier way. No, it's so. much harder. And it's funny, <laughs> everything you're saying, I actually just in the past few days shot videos of me doing, again, I'm sharing the development of my new dog, yeah. Ranger, and Natalie has the, uh, the sister to that same dog. Uh, she has a Lara. And we're going to show a lot of what you're bringing up is mm. we have to, we're, we're doing these same games that you're talking about. But how we do them with my dog and how we have to do them with her dog are a little bit different because okay. her dog needs a little bit more sometimes because she wants her dog to live in the house with her, like just be mm -hmm. loose really a lot. And there's been some developmental things that has come from that that mm -hmm. has different intensity than my dog who is more structured. Like he has, okay. he's out, he gets to go play. He, he has his rest time. He has his time, you know, with me, uh, or playing with the other dogs right now. It's been a lot of just being a puppy, you know, I, I create yeah. structure, yeah. but I don't just let him roaming around the house to do nothing. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if he's out, he's doing something. So, but just, I think in the dogs themselves, there's differences plus it's that nature versus nurture. So mm -hmm. nature-wise, they're slightly different. And then how we've been nurturing them is slightly different. But what we want to share is exactly what you're talking about, is showing these developmental steps in these all these different kinds of conditions and areas. But even more in detail is, oh, look, with this type of dog, we can do it this way. And with this type of dog, we do this. And this is the reason why. Like this dog, we're going to play more or maybe it's more food yes. games yeah. because she needs more food than my dog does. My dog may be more crazy for the toy, so forth. So mm -hmm. it's this is just such good information for those that are watching and listening um, because just like you said, all of us in some way or another have dealt with this. Um and we may have done it backwards, you know, yeah. there's so, so many that, it, you know, I know you get the questions. I get the questions at what age should I start putting my dog on odor? And I'm like, not until you're done with all this other stuff, which is usually the dog's <laughs> a lot older. Um, yeah. Yeah. but there's been that mentality of, uh, or information has been shared. Oh, you should start a dog as early as possible on odor. And what you got to read and what we've seen is, it, it doesn't make a significant difference putting them on odor when they're really young and then going to odor later on. Some dogs did better, but at, at the end of the day, the data was nothing better than chance. Some yes. dogs did, some yeah. dogs didn't. Yeah. It did not really provide yeah. a, a really big advantage. So, But what does big, give a big advantage is teaching a dog that everywhere is a positive or a fun experience and you can build and, and get a dog really working strongly um, in all kinds of places. And the sooner you do some of that, the better. 
you know, mm-hmm. developing. But you, again, you got to do this based on that dog in front of you. You know, if yeah. the dog's going through a fear stage or going through something, this might not be the time to do a certain type of exercise. It might be time just to do exposure, you know, and then to help mm-hmm. the dog through certain things, not maybe cover it up through play. You know, you might have to teach them, oh, look at this. Isn't so bad. Okay, now we can engage. Not use engagement mm-hmm. to make the bad thing go away. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And again, I'm, I'm, there's like you said, there's so many ways that this conversation could go with options for people based on their dogs. So I, 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 I'm hesitant to say, you know, say too many things because it'll get turned into, Oh, you said, use it this way. Well, no, it it would depend on the dog in front of me. So, uh, but I just want people to think about, it's not a rush. You don't have to try to put odor on as soon as possible. Um, there's a lot more important things like communication. Um, like everything you brought up, the development of the mark, the, the development of play, the development of communication. There's so many of those things that you're building in those early stages, and then you're going into the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And and the big advantage is um, dealing with these things first, creating a good learn setup and the structure of learning and the, the rules of play and, and how to um, ignore environments or distractors. Um, if you don't do that, you will have very hard times um, getting on track and and yeah. and concentrating on the real thing. Uh, so yeah, don't try to take a shortcut there. Nope, um, because you're gonna you're gonna story. fix the pro- you're gonna still address the problem. You still have to yeah. fix the problem. Exactly, you, you you will still have to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's 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 good stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm this was a great conversation, and you know. Uh, obviously, I know we'll do more. I have a question, and I ask this usually of the guests who I know will be very valuable to those that are watching and listening. Would you be interested? Well, me, one first thing first, I guess, is me and you've already talked about doing a seminar together. So that will come out uh, probably in the next few months. We'll talk about when we're going to do it, but it'll be over there in Europe. And yes. I will do one where you get to come over here. Um, then the but the fir- but on top of that, would you be interested in doing a webinar on on my platform on the on the Ford Canine site so that way we can have people find you there and you can share a topic maybe what we're talking about maybe development or something of that you want to share? Would you be interested in doing a, a webinar? That would be great. I I would love to do so. Perfect, because I I just. I know as people listened, if they made it all the way to the end of this podcast, they're going to be really hungry for some of that information that we're talking about. <laughs> um, and, and we both share a lot of things on social media. So speaking of that, how do people find you if they want to shoot you or an email or find you on social media? Where do they go to? What, what sites are in, in social media do you have? Well, of course, you can have a look on our homepage at www.kunotech.com. Dot at I, I leave it to you to spell yes I will it. I will um, yeah K Y N O T is it yeah T E C Kenotech yeah exactly uh, but I'll put it in the and, show notes and I'll put it on the screen yeah, here please yeah and also on Facebook uh, Kenotech as well Instagram Kenotech uh, check out our podcast please uh, if yes. you haven't listened to it yet uh, also we have a, a great episode with Cameron himself <laughs> and me so I'm sure. You will enjoy that. Uh, it's called Kuno Talk yep. by Kuno Tech. Yep. And yeah, that's how you find us. We also have a YouTube channel. And of course, 
it's bilingual. So we have a lot of German content, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, our homepage is in German. Um, I'm still working on a solution on how to, to, to have it both in English, English and German. And, yeah. And, and German. But uh, yeah, um, I have to prioritize. And oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I first. believe me. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it with, you know, is, you are you are starting to do what I've been going through now, which is you know, like you said, the, the development of your podcast and then videos. Yes. And who knew that being a dog trainer really meant you had to be really good at videos and audio stuff, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. No one told me that. <laughs> no, I didn't know that either. And about a year ago, I had to start learning really quickly how to do this kind of stuff. But yeah. obviously, you know, it's it's really awesome to be able to share information like you shared on this podcast with so many people. Um, because at the end of the day, it's all about getting information out so people have more resources to have a better relationship with their dogs. Yes. So I thank you so much for spending the time to come on here and to reach almost two hours. And uh, it's really been uh, wonderful to have this conversation with you. And like I said, there obviously will be lots more. And then for all of our listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Canines Talking Sense where it's okay to be nosy.